Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stigable and I'm the editor of the TLS. She's been off, I've been off, but now we're back free together to talk literature and dogs and heated cheese and the like. Hello, Thea Lenarduzzi. Hello. Hello. Uh, You sent me a review. I did. Didn't didn't you? I did. They're all very nice reviews, so please do review us in, in our iTunes. It, it's, uh, Only if they're nice. Yeah. <laughs> it takes a particular kind of person to sit through a whole episode of this <laughs> go, and then go, it. I hate it, I'm going to tell the world that. So, <laughs> anyway, uh, Serenity of Classics, who is reviewing us from the Republic of Korea. I love the geographical range. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. Where's the updates on ALF as promised? We want to be kept abreast of the latest news on the adventures of ALF. He has become a regular part of the podcast alongside Stig and Thea. And because I occasionally get people criticising my cheese references, as you know. No one criticises your ALF. No, but I just feel feel I've become become nervous about it. So how is ALF doing? ALF ALF is doing well. He's... uh, He's doing well. He's scared of everything. Is he? And it, I think, That's all I right, think his I think his fears are developing more, and I don't know whether it's because he's aware of having more to lose now. <laughs> but he is, he's petrified <laughs> of think, all men. Is he? Yeah, he's that means, petrified of all men. That's probably a sign of something not very exactly. present in his background. And yeah, yeah, there's definitely that. But he's, he's yeah, he's, he's... Well, the other yeah. reason I haven't been mentioning Alf is, of course, that I've lost my dog. Yeah, no, I know. Um, because little biscuit, because we have, I have a little baby, and he jumped on the baby, and he has a bit That's of a. That's tragic. He has a uh, habit. He had a habit when he was a puppy of snapping at children, yeah. which we thought we were managing, and then we thought we could keep them separate. But you can't keep a baby no. and a dog separate. Particularly, she's about to start crawling, yeah. and he jumped on her, and he didn't bite down, but nearly did. Yeah. And could have done. Yeah. And so we then had to say. Um, we had to, we, we're doing a thing where it sounds like this is a euphemism I'm telling my children but it genuinely isn't we have literally found the perfect farm for him in the centre of England <laughs> where he can romp to his, his heart's content which is a funny thing to picture for a shih tzu a shih tzu on a farm yeah well it's kind of a farmland it's not really a working farm but he uh, uh, and then I'm the only one who misses him oh, really? I thought everyone would miss well, him well I mean I can lend you Alf anytime you want really it, well he'll probably be petrified of you is the problem and he'll be petrified of your baby Yeah. so if you're if you're at all worried about dog meeting baby it yeah. won't happen because Alf will just run a mile but there is a pressure in there now you own a dog you do worry yeah. about I do 
I do. When I was away back home in Italy, I I missed him so much and I was so worried for him. And was he pleased to see you when you came out? He was so pleased to see us and he hadn't left the house and he was looking, he was staying with our neighbours who, who he knows and they are right next door and their house is the mirror image of ours. Uh, and he was so scared and I don't know, weirdly loyal maybe that he refused to leave the house with them for six days. So by the time we came to him, he was a tightly coiled. This was supposed to be a light, gentle, just to to appeal to our listeners in Korea and and elsewhere. There's a lot of catching up to to give. Okay, so (laughs) I think we're now caught up with Alf. Uh, and we'll return to this as it's popular uh, every week from now on we'll be trying to get you the cheapest possible deals to, to subscribe to the TLS so I'm going to give you some codes again if you live in the USA or Canada just go to this address podcast.the-tls.com that's podcast.the-tls.com if you live anywhere else including the UK then go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod 19 if you do that you'll get five issues for just five pounds or five dollars what a bargain that is this week rob mcfarland the great poet of nature writing has a new book out underland which is extracted in the tls this week we'll be talking to him is the original dumbo really a racist film many people have said so but nicola shulman has an alternative theory she would like to share that means you won't be able to look at the tale of the big-eared circus elephant the same way ever again And as part of our Africa issue this week, Margie Orford has been reading a new book about the new South Africa. Part of the route towards reconciliation or another example of white privilege bemoaning the advent of equality. You decide. It's hard enough, what with one thing and another, thinking about the visible world stretching from the ground, touching our feet to the distant horizon above our heads. But one of the great nature writers in English, Rob McFarlane, has now directed his attention to the earth below us, a place for which humans have historically had three uses. In his terms, to shelter what is precious, to yield what is valuable and to dispose what is harmful. His new book, Underland, is a modern journey to the centre of the earth, the natural culmination of Rob's career as a writer. He's done mountains, wild places, old places, and now the dark places that begin to tell us about where our species has come from and what its destructive future may be. If you follow him on Twitter or have read any of his other stuff, you'll know that any excavation of the earth will become an excavation of language itself. How do you render that shiver of existence into prose? And in this new era, the Anthropocene, how do you write with wonder and terror about the fate of the planet without lulling people into fatalistic paralysis? Big questions, and he's on the line now to give us some answers. Rob, welcome. You've always been a laureate of the outside world, it's fair to say. What, what led your attention downwards, beneath that? <laughs> well, there's a, there's a gravitational logic at work here, which yeah. is that 15, 16 years ago, I wrote a book about why people climb mountains, why they're drawn high. And uh, I, I guess I've spent the, the books in between working my way steadily downwards. So... In a simple sort of oppositional sense, it's the reverse of the question that I first ever asked myself, which is now why why go low? Why are we why are we drawn down? But in I guess a more urgent or or metaphysical sense, uh, the, the underland is a, a realm that we know so little of, ast- astonishingly little. We we can't see it. Our, our sight stops at our toes uh, when we look down. It stops at the stars trillions of miles away when we look up and the underland is also where our past is 
archived, recorded in these extraordinary ways in ice cores and ocean sediments and stalactites. And it's also where our future is right now being determined. In fact, the extract that we're running this week um, starts in Greenland with this beautiful account of of the memory of ice. It gives an almost kind of dizzying sense of the world beneath the surface. Can you can you give us a sketch of that here, sort of what you saw or what you what you read in that mass of ice? Yeah, yeah. It, thank you. It's. Um, I mean, I I was in East Greenland at a peculiar time. Although all our times are peculiar right now, it feels. Uh, I was there in a summer when Nuuk, the capital of Greenland, hit 22 degrees centigrade uh, in a year when the ice began melting up to a month earlier than it should have done on the ice cap. And so I first of all had the senses of ice, which has always been a kind of category slipper as a, as a matter, as a form of matter, really on the move, um, thinning in these profoundly consequential ways. Um, but I also had a sense of it as this remarkable perishable archive uh, ice does have a memory it has a fabulous memory it can remember tens of thousands of years ago uh, with astonishing chemical atmospheric precision and so we have used we've learned to read ice as as an archive as a kind of storage medium we've we've technologically caught up with its communication skills and its storage skills and we now read it for our future. A lot of ice core work is done precisely in order to kind of delve down so that we can then prophesy our own climate futures, which are being determined precisely by that fast-moving ice. You talk in the book, book a lot and generally about this idea of the Anthropocene, which I think I think has probably got common currency now. Um, why yeah. is it significant that there is a geological period named with the word man in it? why? Because some people might look at that and think, well, that's just the natural, you know, this is the era of mankind. Of course, the, the, the geological period will, will refer to that. Well, uh, first of all, I should say that we're not formally yet in the Anthropocene. We are still in, in the Holocene, which is the, um, the post-Pleistocene epoch in which our species has, has flourished fabulously as a time of, broadly speaking, um, uh, a climate stability. Um, but I think soon this will be redesignated by the stratigraphers as, as the Anthropocene. Um, it's a much contested word, partly because it's got man in it, um, and partly because uh, a lot of people see it as a, actually as a systemic uh, a creation. So people propose it should be named the, the Capitalocene, because capitalism mm. emerging at whenever we date that emergence to has, has profoundly driven the changes which, which have inscribed our consequences upon the earth with such force that they will leave a permanent strata legacy. And I guess that's where the idea of the underland loops around the idea of the Anthropocene, because that's where we are leaving the, the, the rock record by which we will be read in, in, in an imaginary future. If there is indeed a, a future. Um, because, yeah. um, you know, just yet to, today, I think, or yesterday, there was an announcement of uh, a survey that, you know, a million species could be uh, destroyed. How gloomy are you as a person now, Rob? Uh, have you been writing this book for for seven years? You've been talking about this stuff for for more than that. Are you getting increasingly gloomy, or it's, it's, is there any is there any glimmer there? We're we're talking at an at, at an amazing moment. I mean, we're talking in the weeks after Greta Thunberg, after Extinction Rebellion, after these school climate strikes have have gathered force. This uh, rolling mass of scientific data, which is increasingly coming freighted with clear political messages from scientists, which is not what scientists are on the whole 
meant to do. Um, as uh, in a way, as the gloom deepens, um, that that the, the hope rises, uh, and obviously there's a shut-off point where 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 hope is no longer feasible. But I d- I do oddly feel that we are at, although we are approaching some some drastic tipping points. I feel this the urgency of this ancient and very present situation is is actually beginning now to to act and bear heavily on on politics in this country but also globally so i feel i feel at once more dis, more despairing and more hopeful than i ever have but i also despair at resignation because that's simply not a viable option and is the great threat in all writing that tackles climate change if you emphasize the scale of it you make people feel that all action is futile yeah, this, uh, there's a there's a great word for this, which is uh, the, the stuplimity, which is coined by uh, Sian and Guy, who's a cultural theorist. And th- this is a very modern version of the of the sublime, but this is the stuplime. <laughs> the stuplime is where you're faced with something so overawing that it concusses you into fatigue. You are left stupefied, and I think that's very often where we find ourselves. But I, I, increasingly, I see I see. You know, action being taken um, and 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 positive consequences coming for that. There are good news stories out there as well on on local and, and national scales. I think the the mother of all stories, as as uh, Rebecca Solnit calls climate change and environmental breakdown, is 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 obviously massively systemically problematic. But it it is there are beginnings of, of of an address. Well, and your your books have always you know as much as they've been about nature and often vast landscapes have always also been about the people they're always very populated books uh with you know in inverted commas small people doing you know making the starts of big things thank you i'm really glad to hear that um and and actually there's a i can give you a, a hopeful story that i found out just this morning about bjorna nikolaisen who is the um, seer-like, um, super powerful, charismatic Norwegian fisherman who's the subject of one of the chapters called the the Edge up in up in Norway. He lives in Arctic Norway, and he for years fought plans to open oil drilling off the Lofoten and Andoya island islands and island where he lives on Andoya. And uh, he and and many others have mobilised an amazing kind of green turn of opinion in Norway, probably the most oiled, oil-rich country in the world, certainly the most, well, actually outside outside the Gulf states, I guess. And they have, just in the last uh, two weeks, it, it, the Labour Party has swung its might in Norway behind the green plans to obstruct drilling and drilling off the Lofotens in these cold water reef zones, these beautiful pristine waters, looks to be off the table almost certainly forever now. It's a brilliant example of kind of coalition work between unlikely community groups, fisher, grumpy fishermen and, <laughs> um, and young green activists. You, you, you're a bit of a seer, use the word, uh, Rob. Do you think that's, that's fair? You're sort of a charter and a chanter of language uh, <laughs> together. Now, I, I, there is a serious question looming here, which is, um, are you a bit of a mystic? Do you need to be a bit of a mystic? Or do you just find something in the sort of sensuous tremble of language that appeals to you, even putting aside the politics of this? Well, I, I obviously, to drastically repudiate the, uh, the job title of seer, um, <laughs> oh, it, it's not going to be on my business cards anytime soon. But um, actually, it's, it's less the sensuous tremble of, of, of language and, and more the sensuous tremble of matter. I, I, am, I, I am, to borrow Les Murray's phrase, only interested in 
everything. And um, uh, and I'm astonished by the world. I mean, I while writing this book, I became um, uh, aware of what what's called the Wood Wide Web. This um, now quite increasingly well known connection uh, network of um, mycelial mycorrhizal fungi that that weave with the roots of trees to fuse trees into intercommunicating forests they can share along this network um, packets of information uh, warnings signals but and also resources and this has been going on for about 400 billion years but western science at least only caught up with it in the past 20 years um, the underland like the rest of the world is filled with 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 miracle and i th- I think a celebration of that miracle, that beauty, if you want to call it that, is as fast a route to a change for the good as as any uh, as as any warning. But you have to connect that to language, I guess. The point I'm making that if you're going to excavate the landscape, you you yes. have to do it to a certain extent by excavating the wordscape because you're trying to find old yeah. words and give it and give them new life. That is critical to what you're doing, which is which is the sort of the poetic side of the of, of the equation. Well, I guess so. Except that um, maybe maybe that was a project I was engaged in um, a few years ago. I think I think in this case, it's it's a it's a it's more a, a case of reworking language and structures of language, paragraphs, sentences, rhythms, um, whole structures of books to speak to a much more contemporary sense of matter and place. And I I mean, this book is subtitled "A Deep Time." journey and it, it it took me a very long time to work out how to write about deep time this this huge geological expanse of chronology that stretches away before and after us and in the end the way i did that was write large parts of the book the first person parts in the present tense that's the tense we live in as it were and then allow deep time to fold away vastly into these kind of inhuman expanses that 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 exist before and after us and so i guess that's an example of yeah language doing work but not necessarily in a sort of delving back into archaism way uh well we could talk about this for a, a very long time but uh, i think we have you know hopefully <laughs> i hate to say running out of time in connection with you. <laughs> uh, uh, Rob, but we are we are yeah. as ever like everything in the world we are running out of time uh, uh, so thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us thanks great pleasure thank Bye. you um, in a sense, listening to him talk there about the kind of the the hugeness of the, the project of writing about time, and I've got the printout of his piece here right in front of me, and I'm just staring at this amazing glacier in in Greenland, feeling very cold. But the vastness of the project, and also the question of whether there is optimism, because we've had a podcast about this, haven't we? Um, where Claire came came as mm. talks, didn't she? Because she'd reviewed three books, and this there is this if you feel it's too much you do nothing. So you have to both convey scale and depth of yeah. time, but you can't make it too big. Because you know, the number of times I've had conversations, even on, on broadcast, where you say things like, well, good thing about Extinction Rebellion is we're talking about climate change, and if you just change one thing, you stop using yeah. it. And everyone goes, yeah, but China. China's <laughs> not going to do that, so why are you doing it? And that's it, it, that scale of it becomes paralysing, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. So in a sense, it makes sense. What Claire Saxby did in her piece, as I recall as well, was to kind of focus on the people who are doing the things in the vastness of the problem, the vastness of the, of the project, and just take it bit by bit by bit um, as, you know, as the, the layering of the structure that, that Robert McFarland is, is, is talking about as well. It's a similar approach, increments. And, and nice occasionally to hear a voice of optimism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We won't make a habit of it. <laughs> 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. As we record this podcast, South Africans are preparing to go to the polls in an election especially fraught with significance for coming exactly 25 years after the end of apartheid and the country's first democratic elections, when, for the first time, the vote of a member of the black majority was worth the same as that of a member of the white ruling class. While listening now, you may already know the outcome of the election, it does not seem risky today, on the eve of the election, to predict that the ruling African National Congress Party, once the party of Nelson Mandela, who won that pivotal election in 1994, will again secure a majority, albeit a reduced one. Any illusion of stability is precisely that. The present ANC is mired in corruption, which the new leader is struggling to contain with talk of renewal. His mandate is then far from solid, and the two main opposition parties, including the radical Julius Malema's economic freedom fighters, are expected to make considerable gains. So now seems a particularly good time to take a reading of South Africa's temperature. Margie Orford has reviewed the Café de Mouvon Blues in Search of the New South Africa by Christopher Hope, a fellow white South African, and she joins us in the studio now. Um, Christopher Hope's book centres on a road trip he undertook in 2015. Can you give us a sense of the climate in the country then? Why did that moment seem to him to be the time to set off? So 2015 saw this upsurge of um, resistance against fees at university, mainly at the University of Atwater's and in Cape Town. And it led into fees must fall and then roads must fall, which... Um, uh, British viewers would know from the, the various movements that happened at Oxford and other places, looking at the legacy of colonialism, the extractive nat- nature of capitalism as it's worked in colonies and how hard it's been to for ca- a country like South Africa to, even though it's a democracy, to divest itself of the kind of soft, enduring, but brutal power, actually, that has continued in terms of economic differences. So he starts it off at the University of Cape Town 
which is actually where I went to university, and there was this enormous statue of Rhodes sitting like the Colossus staring out up, you know, at everything that he fantasized at, at acquiring. The Colossus, the Colossus of Rhodes mm. is very funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, so around, Rhodes came to stand in for everything that stood for capital and this kind of big... Uh, mining capital that's that's so devastated South Africa. A little bit of context, actually, something that Christopher Hope doesn't mention at all is that this took place not long after, um, just a couple of years after a terrible massacre at Marikana Mine, which 35 miners were shot. So this movement had links to to those issues. And they were they were shot by their they employer? were shot by the police. the police. It was a platinum mine, and the protests about the Americana Commission had have kind of fed into people basically saying, after ninety four we had this amazing constitution, but the economic circumstances of most people has not changed at all, and it's very difficult for black students to go to university. They are in debt, so it's a very complex. Complex social issues that actually reverberated around the world at the time. Trump, you can see it in what happened with Trump around Brexit votes, the left behind people and people who've been excluded. And to some people um, in this country, there's there's Mandela being released, there's the 94 election, there's the end of apartheid. And to some people, that's been the idea that, well, that's the, that problem fixed. That's that moment of, of history writing itself um, and you still get moments on the news which will challenge that, but it's not very ever present in, in the consciousness. But as we get to 25 years this year since mm. that happening, is it a good moment, do you think, for people who aren't thinking about South Africa all the time to reflect on what's going on, on in that country? I think they should reflect on it, one, because it's it's such an important country in terms of the people measuring their moral conscience of the 20th century. So, yes, there was this enormous and miraculous change that happened in South Africa. It's an amazing constitution based on, on the Charter, Human Rights Charter and South Africa's Freedom Charter. So one way of looking at South Africa is to say there was this, at the super ego level, everything changed. Um, you had rule of law, you went from one of the most repressive totalitarian states um, of the 20th century, the apartheid government, to a proper and vigorous and highly contested democracy with amazing free speech and all of those sorts of things. What didn't happen was the kind of economic change, which for a number of reasons, if you think back to the early 1990s, it was an attachment to neoliberal um, ideas of the market that people would make money by having a kind of trickle-down effect. So why it's worth thinking for British viewers, perhaps, is that many of the problems you see in Britain are the same. Some people got very rich, Many people have become extremely poor and their lives are precarious. There, there are many parallels, even though it's so far away. So so this book was written at a time, 2015, when this absolutely kind of blew up, that economic change had not happened. And economic change means in South Africa that white people stayed basically absolutely well off. And one of the things that Christopher Hope does in this book is kind of name drop verbatim a conversation, kind of very brief conversation he had with Oliver Tambo, I think in Muswell Hill, somewhere in North London in the late 80s, in which, as he puts it forward, Tambo promised to him that race would not matter. 
after the end of apartheid. But of course, race and wealth are inextricably Well, linked. and, and in, in fact, since uh, 2015, when this book was written, there's been a steady ramping up, hasn't there? I mean, now uh, unemployment rates are almost 30%, and the, th- that falls disproportionately, of course, in the black majority communities. So where where are we now? So so the 2015 was the sort of death throes, I suppose, of Ch- President Zuma, who is one of the most corrupt men in Africa, probably. You know, he's got some competition there um, <laughs> in terms of what was happening. So part of what happened with these protests, which was very interesting, was that much of it was, um, they were very turbulent, the ones he's describing around uh, uh at the University of Cape Town, uh, these student protests, was against this kind of mass corruption, the evisceration of the state. Interestingly, um, now there's... Um, so Ramaphosa is president. The elections are on Thursday, I think on the 8th or the 9th. There has been a concerted attempt to get rid of this corruption, he talks of renewal and change again. Renewal and change and of um, trying people. Mm. Zuma will be up for trial on 702 counts, I think. In, oh, wow. So there's July. no kind of in, uh, there's no chance that he'll be, I think, of Italian politics and there's always a way of kind of becoming him. Actually, know, Zuma and Berlusconi would get on really well. Yeah, I'm well. sure they're best mates. <laughs> <laughs> they, they would have a lot in common. No, there's been. Um, a number of arrests, uh, head of the National Prosecuting Authority was fired because he had been corrupt and made dockets disappear. And So is this a moment of optimism, you feel, this election is a moment of optimism, or is there lots of false storms in, in South African optimism? No, I think that, um, you know, Cyril Ramaphosa himself is a very interesting man. He was um, the head of the National Union of Mine Workers in the 1980s, very, very close to Mandela. They were very closely aligned in terms of an ability to bring together almost impossibly divergent interests, economic and social interests, and negotiate a compromise that worked the best in terms of principle and economics. He was Mandela's right-hand man in the, in the negotiations around the end of apartheid. So I think that there's reason for optimism. I mean, he's been tested He's been in business. You will have seen The Economist has endorsed him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I think Bloomberg, you know, a number of these sort of big... But the lesson of the last what? 25 years has perhaps been that you can have optimism, you can have a great leader even, you can have a moment of change. But we're talking in this conversation, This one of your very trenchant criticisms of this book is ultimately to say nothing. nothing's changed really in, in the last 25 years substantively as, as it comes to the economic plight of, of what was once a repressed people. I think I think that that's part of the point which, which uh, disturbed me so much about this book is Christopher Hope makes out as if nothing has changed. I don't think that's true. I think that the an enormous amount has changed if you look at how many of people have been brought into the economy. There is, as you said, massive unemployment. But... What has changed, and one of the things he he seemed to find difficult in this book was this kind of uprising of a young generation who say to him, there is no place, or he he thought they were saying to him, there's no place for for you and for people like you. These would be the the Julius Malema voters? Yes, a lot of the 
supporters of the student protests that we see in these went for the the for Julius Malema for the um, Economic, Economic Freedom, Freedom Front, Front, the EFF, who I have to say are absolutely brilliant on sort of retro Maoist um, Instagram pictures and <laughs> things like that. <laughs> who is incredibly corrupt? Mm. He's he's incredibly corrupt. And he's corrupt. former Julius ANC. Malema. Was he the youth? He leader? was the he was in the youth league and yeah. he headed up the youth league and he fell out with Zuma around power really I think so so a very dangerous aspect of South African politics is the EFF this rise of essentially a moral populist who's very good at rhetoric and sort of raising the crowds and various things but I was just reading some of the polls when I was on my way here looking at voting that the EFF has gone from like one or two percent polling to possibly 14 to 15 percent. Which is another spirit of the age thing, isn't it? Sort mm. of populist rhetoric does well these days. It does very well, and people are absolutely desperate. Yeah. Um, so, so people, I read some interviews with, with voters from Port Elizabeth, which is a swing city, always, you know, ANC heartland. People saying, we want a job. These people are promising us job and f- jobs and free education for our children. So I think that they will get a, a vote. So one of the dangers is, like is happening perhaps in many European countries, is that an extremist party sets the tone. Yeah. They don't need to win. No, that's mm-hmm. they, they They set the tone around how things are discussed and how things are, are managed. One of the issues, of course, which they bring up, uh, which is key to the EFF, is the, the land and who owns the land and, and all of that well, sort of well, thing. Well, I want to bring it back to the book just finally because that seems to me that your central criticism that uh, Christopher Hope wants to believe maybe that there's a promise of a future where no account is paid to colour and creed. And what you seem to be saying is that is the privilege of a, of a white man to say that. Because uh, uh, this, this world without race is an easy way of pretending that the previous centuries of injustice never existed and reparation is not due. We say, okay, level playing field, level playing field, you know, all, everything is wiped clean. That itself is kind of a privileged position to try and start from. It's privileged and it shows a profound lack of empathetic intelligence if I could put it that way, because he talks of race and it's it's a malaise amongst many white South Africans. It's a way of refusing the culpability that we have, and I'm one of them, of the, the heritage that we have, how we got where we were, the land we own. Race is not a, a kind of fashionable, like a cloak that you can take off and, and drop besides you. It's a deeply embodied politics and race and economics in South Africa are absolutely they're the same side of one piece of paper you can see both sides but you can't separate them and his solution is kind of pretend it didn't happen and that's not going to after these elections that's not going to be the case there's never going to be a moment we've had truth and reconciliation we've had movement we've had advancement if you said but ultimately the history of the land will always be there and always be a pressing factor and it has to and it has to be morally It, morally, economically, I mean, it requires, I think I wrote in the review, a sort of redistribution, not just of, of wealth, but of of morality as well. Because there's, it's infantile to say apartheid is over, you know, it's a tabula rasa, I'm a tabula rasa. It's kind of white art, I would say. You can't possibly claim that. So this tone throughout the book, which which really 
infuriated me because it's disingenuous, this disingenuous innocence that you can somehow say, now it's over, I wish to now reap the benefit. It goes back to, I think, one of the failures of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which he doesn't mention, interestingly, in this book. He keeps on saying that nobody talks about history, nobody talked about race, which is, I, don't, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how you could claim that. It's not possible. It's it's a country that's obsessed with those things and talks of it constantly. But one of the things that white South Africans did was a kind of intellectual and moral slate of hand is to say, oh, we had the TRC, those people, a couple of security policemen did everything wrong, mm -hmm. therefore we are innocent. That claim was, was just impossible. But the reflection required is a profound one the claim, you know, to childhood innocence, yes, children are born where they're born, they're not responsible, but they become responsible. There's no there's no claim for innocence, which is somehow seem what he seems to want. Is that just on a final point then, is the case for reparations, paid reparations, is that is that the only way? You know, it's it's something that we talk about again and again in America and in this country as well, actually, the case for reparations, paid reparations to make up for the history. Is that something that we should see happen? I don't know if it will happen. I mean, one of the, the, I think it would be a good idea. I mean, I think that the push, you know, how it will be financed and how it would be paid for is, a, is for economists to answer. But for instance, like the provision of a free education would go a, enormous ways for, to providing people with the sort of um, skills that they need in the contemporary economy. One of the issues around the land is that many people who have had land claims, um, and this is where the ANC government has also failed, have been very slow to return or pay people for land that they lost mm. or means of income that was lost. So there's culpability of a failure to put into place laws that are actually there for reparations. That's one of the things that the EFF has been very effective with. But there's a lot of arguments for all sorts of ways of bringing people into the economy. And I think that the sort of redistributive element is going to be crucial. Otherwise, you're just going to have this eternal divide of a kind of poverty, a kind of hundreds of years worth of poverty. And they're very, very close parallels to um, what African-Americans are, are claiming and the kind of socioeconomic circumstances that people find themselves in. Margie Orford, thank you so much. I'm afraid we'll have to leave it there, but it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you. I remember watching the Disney film Dumbo as a small child, aghast at the rejection of the little elephant and sad for the brutal treatment of his mum. But I can't remember that much more about it. Made in 1941, it was Disney's fourth animated film and did pretty well, more than making its pretty small budget back. As the years have passed, people have looked at some of the characterisation and deemed it racist. There are the Black Crows, voiced mainly by African-American actors who have felt to embody racial stereotypes. I didn't notice that at the time, and I'm not entirely sure I agree now. But Nicola Shulman this week not only dismisses the charges of racism, but advances a theory that Dumbo was its polar opposite, a critique of racism, a civil rights fable smuggled into a mainstream movie. So before you all go off to watch the film again, we shall hear Nicola's idea firsthand. She joins us now. Nicola, welcome. Thank you very much. Hello. Um, firstly... How much was this seen as a film of racial stereotypes? It eventually got that reputation, didn't it? 
Well, yes. I'm um, obviously not at the time. I mean, you've, we've got to remember this was made in 1941, and um, one of the things that I really kind of object to in life is uh, that we are expected to, uh, you know, to impose the our own morality on people who were doing things kind of 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Uh, 500 years ago and I don't think that the film was ever intended at any level to be racist but that the crows in the last scene and I just to re just if there are any of your audience who incredibly might not be able to remember <laughs> dump the 1941 Dumbo <laughs> um, they come in right at the end when Dumbo who has had an alcoholic hallucination from drinking a spiked barrel of water which is spiked with champagne uh, has uh, this hallucination which is one of the most famous things in the scene in the, in the film and then everything goes kind of blurry and melty and then he wakes up in a tree and what is interesting is that um, from the point of view of uh, the racial stereotype thing is that there are these crows and the first words that are said to these crows are by the mouse who is uh, his friend, who says, what are you guys doing down here? Get back up in the tree where you belong. So, so we should take the go back to the first principle here, here Nicola. In your view, Dumbo is an allegory. Perhaps explain why you think it's an allegory, because we get to the Jim Crow bit right at the end of the film, don't we? Yeah. OK, so the thing is, you've got to understand, is I must have watched Dumbo a hundred times because I had three children, all of whom in succession became obsessed with this film. And so I probably watched it every night for each of them for, let's say, a year. <laughs> uh, well, not every night, pretty much. I mean, I watched. I, I must have watched it more than 100, 150 times with my kids. So I kind of got to thinking that... This is very interesting because all the what happens is that there's a Mrs. Jumbo. Mrs. Jumbo is an elephant in a circus troupe on a train, and then a crow delivers her a baby, and all the females, uh, other female elephants, come round and go coo -choo -coo -choo -choo -choo. Um, and then the elephant, the baby elephant, sneezes, and he's got these big ears, and there's this huge ears, and this is the moment of shock and horror. And everyone goes, oh, is it possible? And uh, then after that, sort of terrible, terrible things happen to, uh, to, to Dumbo and his mother. And all of which is predicated on this fact of him having big ears. And I sort of started thinking, why is that so bad that he's got big ears? Is it something to do with kind of people having sticking out ears, um, that there was a sort of thing about plastic surgery or... Hollywood. And then I suddenly thought, I know, it's so obvious. It's because he's got African ears. Um, all circus elephants, which are the kind of biddable, tameable elephants, have got um, uh, small flat ears, whereas African elephants, who are very well known to be um, intractable, you can't make them do work, they're wild animals, have got big ears. They've got big, outstanding ears, and this is the kind of ears that, uh, that Dumbo has got. So what this means effectively is that if you translate it back into the you know into the terms of the film which is an anthropomorphized narrative is that who's dumbo's father dumbo's father is an african elephant that's why his ears are so big that's why the elephants are so shocked 
And so this is a parable of a mixed race baby being. It's a parable of a mixed race baby being brought, being born in a small town, southern states. Where not yeah. not only did the, does the community reject him, they also turn on the mum for the sin of having a relationship with someone of another race. The question of who Dumbo's father is actually is something that hangs over the whole of that movie. There's another point that you make which um, sort of stitches thing, things together more tightly as well um, about this this kind of central presumption of his dumbness. It's put there for us as though it were a logical step that he has big ears and he is also dumb. Well, I think there are two things that are happening here. One is that the anti-miscegenation laws were obsessed with white, with the purity of white women. And Dumbo is incapable of participating in what is within the movie, the white man's civilization, which is the circus. And it's actually his ears that prevent him from being able to do any of these circus tricks. He's not dumb. He's an elephant. Mm. <laughs> He's more like an elephant than the other elephants. That's the problem with him. Can I, offer a, can I offer a theory then here, Nicola? Is this an yeah, example please. of a film that is a racist attempt, because it's kind of haplessly racist in the sense it was made in 1941, to still right a wrong? It's, it, it's imbued in racism because even people with good intentions perhaps in the 40s would have not been able, to, able, able necessarily to see past racial stereotypes, but it's mm-hmm. ultimately pursuing the end of critiquing racism. So it's kind of both kind of helplessly connected to it, but also seeking to write it. I don't know whether it is helplessly connected to it because it's, it's because the idea of his being dumb is only something which appears through, which, which, which um, he's only dumb in the context of the circus. And what you find is that he's not actually dumb. He's much more talented than all the other elephants because when he meets the crows and he learns what he can do with his ears, um, he turns out to be a kind of superstar in fact. So actually there's not very much, I mean the other, the other argument again for its racism is that when they're looking for a, one of the crows to be especially Afro-American in terms of its speech, they hire a white person to sort of talk up the African-American nuss. Oh yeah definitely, I mean but again I, I mean that is definitely true that that when they want to uh, present these uh, stereotypical African-Americans, the person sadly and paradoxically, that they can find who who sounds what sounds most black to, you to, know, a, to white a white audience. audience is actually a white man uh, doing an impersonation of a black voice. And so the guy who plays so-called Jim Crow is actually Cliff Edwards, who is a white vaudeville singer who had actually had a short time doing blackface. And yet they did, as you say, engage the first ever black singers, the Hall Johnson's Black Choir from the Methodist Church in in Los Angeles. So I suppose it brings us back to what you were saying, Stig, which is it's sort of both. It's both trying to push beyond the kind of the the norms and expectations of the time at the same time as as being trapped by them. When I started researching it, I was quite, having kind of come up with this theory to myself, I thought, well, let's look into this. And then it turned out that Everything that happens to Dumbo and his mother is a direct enactment of a Jim Crow law. So the mother is put in a lunatic asylum. This is what happened to women who were found to consult with black men. Um, They were regularly incarcerated or sectioned. I mean, as late as 1950, there was a white woman who married a lawyer in Ohio a black lawyer and her parents got an, hired an attorney who would um, have her judged insane. They kidnapped her. They imprisoned her. 
finally she managed to escape and then they kind of disinherited her. So this was the sort of thing that that happened. And then after she's in prison, then the other elephants, all the Indian elephants, the, the Indian-eared elephants, the circus elephants, decide they're going to have nothing to do with Dumbo and they say they won't eat at the same bale of hay with him. And that is also another um, uh, uh, Jim Crow statute that, um, that you know, that the that, 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 that mixed race or white um, or mixed or black people could not eat um, in the same places as, as as white people, so they completely ostracize him. Then they say that he's not an elephant, which is so. So they kind of they they they, they basically outcast him entirely and say he's lose his identity. What I think we're gonna have to do, Nicholas, people are now gonna have to go and watch yeah. this again. Uh, uh, they don't have to watch it 150 you, you times. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> You've done your time watching uh, watching Dumbo. It feels to me, but I hope people will watch it again because it's a. Uh, it's a really interesting uh, theory. Thank you so much for sharing it with us today. Well, it's much better than the re- than the than the rerun, is all I can say. Well, thank I, you. I think people will agree with that. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure that's true. Uh, Nicola, thank you so much. Okay, thanks. Bye. Um, it, yeah, it, it makes you think as as well about the um the blueness of the eye because there is a focus, isn't there, on the blueness yeah. of the eye, and then you know years later would come Toni Morrison, the baby with the, the eyes of eye. yeah, the baby with the eyes of blue is the yeah. line. Yeah, I mean, I kind of do you buy. I, I mean, I think Nicola makes a, a good case because. Why? Why make this film? Well, it wouldn't this have been way? done accidentally. All of these nods aren't accidental. So well, it's just call, which which way you. If they called the crow Jim Crow, yeah, exactly, and they set it in Florida in the present day, yeah, in nineteen forty-one, yeah, it does, it does, it does give you a lot. A lot of these things do seem to add up. I'm definitely going to go and watch it. As I said, it's the perfect commute length. So I think I'll be watching Dumbo six. on my way home as, I'm a, reading, as a 32-year-old woman. I'm, I'll be reading Robert Caro. That's the promise I've made on this podcast. <laughs> and I'll be watching and, and Dumbo. And you'll be watching The Dumbo. original, of course. Yeah. Uh, well, that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Margie Orford, Rob McFarlane and Nicholas Shulman. Use those codes I gave you to make sure you're subscribing to the TLS. Our Africa special this week is full of joys and next week we'll be focusing on philosophy theory. <laughs> it was a very long hesitation. I know, I thought I'd do a dramatic or philosophical <laughs> pause. Uh, immortality, free speech and the enlightenment. Theo and I will be wearing our best black roll necks and quizzical expression. We do like a philosophy issue, don't we? We do like a, po- a roll neck as well. There are, there I mean, are, I do. do. You do? I do like a There roll are neck. other roll necks in the TLS. Yeah, I know. I know. Competitors. You, you'd expect them to be, and there are. <laughs> it's, one of the, it's one of the great hearty things about the TLS. There are people in Rolex looking quizzically <laughs> at you when you're walking. So we'll talk philosophy, I promise. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.